Here we are in chapter 14 of John. We've had a little bit of break with the cantata and a couple of things. And then uh, last week, uh, briefly before I came in, I didn't feel well. And to my knowledge, I was saying that to Linda, I think that's the first time that I was scheduled to preach that I've <clears throat> never been able to make it because of sickness. Uh, but at any rate, uh, this morning we're in this text, Vessels Through Prayer. <clears throat> and uh, let me give you a little help for those of you that have been away and uh, for those of you that have been here on a regular basis, just bear with me for a couple of moments. In chapter 14, because it is important to understand the context even of what we have before us this morning. And in the chapter that we are dealing with, the disciples were facing major change in their life. Major change in that they had been experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ in their presence on the earth, talking with him, going to him, being instructed by him. And all of this was going to change because Jesus was leaving them. And he had told them this. And with the uncertainty of his leaving, it had resulted in his disciples being concerned. They could not go to be with Jesus at this particular time. Uh, and they would not be all together. Uh, they were going to be dispersed very shortly. And so they were distressed. They were troubled, as you can see from verse 1. And so we find out that in this chapter, Jesus is comforting them. And he's telling them right away in verse 1 that they do believe in God. They continue to trust him. They've been with him. They've seen that they can trust him. They've seen what he can do. And even in this situation with his leaving, they are still to continue to trust in him. He was also instructing them that his work was not finished, as we saw in verses 2 through 4. If you just scan over those verses, he instructed them that he was facing crucifixion, that this was not the end of his work. There would be the death and the burial and the resurrection and ascension. But primarily, he wanted them to realize that he was going back to his father. He was going to heaven. That's where he was going. And even in heaven, his work would not cease. Because while he was in heaven, he would be preparing a place for them so that they could spend eternity with him and not only that but he would be returning again so he would be spending time in heaven preparing the place then coming back to get them so that they could be with him and also we know as we studied that that his intercessory work in behalf of believers continues on even to this day and so as a result of his going and as a result of him trying to comfort them Two of the disciples asked some questions. First of all, it was Thomas in verse 5, particularly we see this in verse 6. And he wanted to know where he was going, where is Jesus going, and how can they know the way. And that opens up to uh, verse 6, a very familiar passage of Scripture, where Jesus said that not only do, do they know the way, and it, where he was going was to heaven, to his Father's presence, but also that Jesus was the exclusive way, and he still is today. Nothing has changed. There are many religions on the face of the earth. There are many people professing different ways for man, most of which the majority by far, no matter what the religion is, is a basis of good works or a basis of man attaining goodness to go into the presence of God. That is not how it happens. Jesus made it very clear in verse 6 that he is the way. He's the way to the Father. He is the way to heaven. He is the truth and the life. And still today, there is no one that comes to him, but uh, no one that comes to the Father but by him. 
And then Philip raised the question as you go on in the chapter, in verse 8 particularly, where they wanted to see the Father. Let us see the Father. And Jesus Christ made it very clear to them that he is the representation of the Father. And to see him, <coughs> excuse me, verse 8, was to see the Father. And that is a clear verse on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's comforting their hearts and saying that, number one, he's the way to the Father. He was going back there. He would not leave them alone. And that if they wanted to really see what the Father was like, they've been witnessing that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we began our study a few weeks back, continuing on in the passage, from verses 12 on down to 17, actually, he's going to present the fact that God has chosen while Jesus Christ is going back, and God did not have to do this, but God has chosen to use people, to use the likes of you and I. He has chosen to use us as vessels or instruments for his honor and his glory. We take that for granted just like uh, people in the United States of America take our freedom for granted. We get up every day, we assume the freedoms that are given to us, and they're just supposed to be that way. And we don't even think about those who are, even as we prayed for the military today, in the air protecting our country, what is going on to continue to make our freedoms possible. We just assume and we get disgruntled when any little thing goes wrong. Well, that is also true with Christianity. We just assume we're supposed to be vessels for God's use and God has an obligation to use us. That is not true. God has chosen, though, to use us as vessels. And the last time we were together, beginning in verse 12, we saw that God made it very clear that he is going to use us to accomplish works for him. And we saw that when he talks about that he's going to have believers do works, that is tasks of obedience. We need to remember that. The works that we have to do for Jesus Christ are a result of the commands that Jesus Christ has given to us, which is found in his word. And it breaks down into the practicality of loving your spouse. It breaks down into the practicality of loving your wife or submitting to your husband. And those are all things that you will and I will be held responsible for. Raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord for children to be obedient to their parents, for employers and employees to have the proper relationship that they should have where their working is unto the Lord, not as unto man. Submission to the government, not protesting it, but submission to the authorities that God has put over us. All of this is part of God's work for the believer. Also proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, exercising our spiritual gifts, loving one another as Christ has loved us. And the list goes on and on. And we talked about that the last time we were in this text. That could include miracles, because God did allow his disciples to perform miracles. But we saw that we're also going to perform works that are greater than that that the Lord Jesus Christ did. If you look at verse 12, greater than these. And we explained that to you last time that that's not greater in amazement. Certainly he raised people from the dead, and it probably had to do with the outreach, including Jew and Gentile, the response to the gospel. Uh, as we showed you, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he left the earth, only had several hundred disciples. And now there are many that have come to Christ because of the expansion of the gospel. 
and also the duration of time uh, in relationship to when Jesus Christ sat on the earth. So we are vessels for works. Well, now we come to our passage this morning, and that brings us up to date. Verses 13 to 15. What do we have there? We have vessels for prayer. And I think this is very appropriate when we're coming to the new year. That we are vessels for prayer. And uh, I think it's a challenge to probably each and every one of our lives. Before we go any further on this subject of prayer and in this text, I'd like you to turn to two other texts of Scripture with me immediately. Would you please go to Genesis chapter 4? Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, the last verse of chapter 4, Verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then you notice the end of the verse. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We go all the way back to the early part of Genesis, and as many of you know, the whole concept of the book of Genesis, it's the time of beginnings. And at the end of this chapter, it's interesting because it goes back to Cain and Abel, and it goes back to the replacement in the, in the sense that there were other children that came along, and it goes back to even the birth of Seth. And I want you to notice that from the beginning of time, well, first of all, when God created Adam and Eve, before sin had come, they were in his presence and enjoyed his presence. But because of sin, they'd been cast out of his presence, and right away, man recognized what still is recognized today. And that is the need to go to God. Some have said that in Genesis chapter 4, it's public worship. Some have said it's private. I don't know what it is because it doesn't give us the details. Don't get lost in that. The reality is men saw the need to start to go to call upon God. They saw that there had to be someone to appeal to. And as we begin to get into this area of prayer here this morning and see that we're vessels for prayer it is interesting because all over the world today all forms of religion or whether people say that they don't have any religion you will find that people appeal to God there are people right now millions of them praying to God millions maybe even billions and there are people who all their life want nothing to do with religion and then all of a sudden a tragedy happens and they're calling upon God when they're in an accident. They're all of a sudden calling upon God when they're on their deathbed. People who wanted nothing to do with God all of a sudden recognize their inefficiency. That they are terminal. And they recognize that there's got to be a higher power. And what happens? It is the concept of talking to God. It is the concept of going to God in prayer. The other verse that I want you to turn to is Psalm 65. Turn with me to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. Verse 2. Here it reads, 
O you who hear prayer. Who is that? That is God. Notice what he says. To you, all men come. That's pretty general. That's pretty universal. And that is what we can observe in the world that we're living in. That no matter what the religion is, there's prayer that's involved in their service some capacity. And as we observe men and women throughout the world, and boys and girls, they cry out or even blame God for things. There's an appeal, and the Scriptures are very clear that it is God who hears prayer, and to Him all men come. And so this concept of prayer, this going of prayer, is not something that's unique to you. It's not unique to me. It's not unique to Fellowship Bible Church. It's not unique to Christianity. The concept of prayer or crying out to God goes all the way back to the pages of Genesis. And it goes all the way forward until we're in heaven with God for all eternity. And most men, no matter where they are in life, look to appeal to God for something that they need. And prayer is a subject that is very easy to talk about. But I'm going to tell you something else. It's difficult to do. And if you don't think it is, just ask yourself how much time you spend in prayer. Do we spend as much time in prayer as we do on watching TV? Do we spend as much time in prayer as we do playing with a computer? How many of you spend as much time, I suppose I've got to deal with the younger generation here, how many of you spend as much time in prayer as you do texting? Some adults don't want to text because they're afraid of it. They don't know how to do it. But the reality is that's the generation that we're going in, things like that. But there's so much time that's spent in all types of communication. And we talk about wireless this or direct TV this or direct that. Listen, the best wireless communication and the best direct communication is prayer. And it's with the God of the universe. And it's so easily neglected by believers, never mind unbelievers. We expect them to call upon God in a tragedy. And it is also easy to recognize that it's easy to pray at mealtimes. And sometimes that's the only prayer life that people have. They pray at meals or they pray when a problem comes. If you get a storm that like we had last week and something happens and the electricity goes out, all of a sudden we're ready to pray. But how about when things are going good? How is your prayer life at that time? How is my prayer life at that time? It is very hard to discipline ourselves to prayer. Not only that, sometimes we wonder whether it's any good, if we're honest. Is God listening? It seems, especially if you've been a Christian a while, and God waits for a while to answer your prayers, then you wonder whether it's even right to continue to pray. And then we come to a text like this. And, and here it says that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, he's going to do it for us. So we need to understand what it's talking about. Let me also turn you to the book of Acts for just a moment or so. Go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I want you to see something very important again. Not only do all men seek to pray to God, and that's who they're going to. But in Acts chapter 2, 
Verse, let's go to verse 42. I'm just going to bounce over a few verses here. I want you to notice how prominent prayer was to the early church. And now let's just take a step back for a second here. By the way, for those of you, and this is a well-taught church, not because I'm in this pulpit. It's a well-taught church because these people that are sitting in this audience read their Bibles, and I praise God for that. And you study, and I praise God for that. But let's be realistic with prayer, and let's take a step back and be honest about it. What is happening in the church with prayer? More and more, the local church is being pushed out, and I'm being honest with you, even in the lives of this audience. Now you can say, here it goes, Pastor Dan's here to browbeat us. No, you just take this before the Lord as we look at the verses we're going to look at. I have opportunity week upon week, frequently day upon day, to talk and communicate with other pastors or missionaries. There are a number of missionaries that have come and visited us here at Fellowship Bible Church that are astounded that we still have prayer meeting because most churches don't have it anymore. You know why? People don't come out to pray. They don't see a need for public prayer. I'm going to tell you something. Reality is probably that if you don't see a need for public prayer, you're probably not praying the way you should privately. It's a smokescreen. Because you're probably out doing something else rather than even praying. Now, in saying that, I'm well aware that there's legitimacy, whether it be with job, with family situations, so it's not a browbeating. It's just a matter of where things are at. Prayer is not a significant part of people's lives except when there's a tragedy, except when there's things going on. And then they come to passages such as we are in. That's why we're going to need to understand it. But in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 42 now, just for a second. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And there isn't a one in this room that can say that that context was not in a context of them gathered together, because that's exactly what they were doing. They saw the need for one another. And part of it was not only the Lord's Supper, Part of it was not only sharing meals, part of it was not only fellowshipping, but praying together. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. This is the early church. Were they going to the temple? They're going to the temple for what reason? To pray. If we could have the cell phones put on vibrate, we'd appreciate that. Okay, but they were going there for prayer. Chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered, the people were all together. Priority in the early church. It was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is after Acts chapter 2. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. How did they get the boldness to preach? How did they get the boldness to teach? How did they get the boldness, if you will, to witness? They were gathered together to pray together. That's what was going on. Chapter 6. 
chapter 6, verse 4. But when they were devoted, excuse me, but we will devote ourselves, this is the leadership, to prayer. Then what happened? Verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God, verse 7, kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued increasingly, increased greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I could go on and on and on. It's enough for just in the book of Acts. They saw it in the early church as an absolute priority for individual prayer and for collective prayer. That is not seen as a priority generally in the church of Jesus Christ today. Individual, it's said that it is. But I don't know how much of it happens in any of our lives like it should. And I stand before you as a pastor and I say to you that it's probably not the priority that it should have in my life, though I pray every day and in many situations. It's easy to let go. We need to see that it is an absolute privilege to be used by God and to be chosen as an instrument and a vessel to accomplish His work, listen, through prayer. God wants to accomplish His work through prayer. You might ask yourself that. Not based upon what your friends think, but based upon what you can objectively, if you stood before the Lord now, and the fruit that is in your life, or should be in your life. Ask yourself how your prayer life is. If you're not witnessing, are you praying the way you should? If you're not bearing much fruit for the name of Jesus Christ, how's your prayer life? It's a good place to come back to. The God of creation does not have to, nor is he under any obligation. Keep this in mind when we go to this text. Go back to John chapter 14. The God of this universe, the God of creation, is not under any obligation to respond to your every whim or my whim. And that is really not what this text is trying to teach at all. So what is the teaching? In John chapter 14, the subject of prayer is vital. And what we find out is that the Lord says some very significant things, that it's possible for us to be a vessel through prayer. Why? First of all, because of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Prayer is not only a vital thing and should be seen by every one of us as vital in our individual lives and in our life collectively as we gather together in homes. And by the way, with those uh, small groups and so forth, that's one of the things that's going to be going on. Those groups are going to be meeting for prayer, hopefully to encourage us in our prayer life. But what is this talking about? Let me tell you what it's not talking about first, very briefly. Number one, this is not a magical formula. This is not magic that we're talking about here. That if I go around and say Jesus' name, that God's got to jump. It's not what it's talking about. We have to admit something. We, as human beings, are superstitious people. So are Christians. You see it all the time. Some people feel by making the sign of the cross, you see that with athletes. By making the sign of the cross, they're going to hit a home run. Or they're going to catch this pass, or then after they did, and so forth. No, 
by holding on to a rabbit's foot, by having a medal around your uh, or neck or in your dashboard and things of that nature, by sitting on a certain chair. We're so superstitious. You know, uh, whether we wear a certain thing, you know, the team's going to win and so forth. We do that as Christians. You know, I've got to just watch the TV set in this chair or the, the, the Bruins or whoever it is going to lose. It sounds foolish to you, but Christians are doing that stuff. And we do it all the time. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't just, I pray, and at the end of the name, I tack on the name of Jesus. And by the way, this has also resulted in people going the other way. They won't even talk about Jesus' name because they don't want to be that superstitious. And again, both are missing the whole point of the passage. This isn't a rabbit's foot. Secondly, nor does it mean that God is a genie in a bottle where I rub him in prayer and all of a sudden he's got to respond to everything that I want. That's not what this is talking about at all. So we have these material requests, so now we go to God because we want to buy something or we want to get a certain mortgage or we want to do this. Now, by the way, should we pray about those things? Absolutely. But some of us, that's the only time that we go to him. It's like we're rubbing the genie or we're adding the name of Jesus and so we suspect that that's, he's got to just jump. Is that what he means when he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do? Not at all. What does it mean then? Here's what it means. It means that all that the name of Jesus stands for, everything that Jesus represents, when I am going to God in prayer, and asking in his name, I am coming to the Father as a representative of Jesus Christ. Everything that his name means. What does that mean? His character. His work. I am only able to come in prayer. That's why you want to remember. It's not just adding the name on. But some of us just jump into prayer and we forget this isn't even possible. Apart from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's his work. It's everything that he represents so that when we come into the Father's presence and ask in Jesus' name, we are coming, if you will, as it's scriptural, as an ambassador. If you think about it, trying to apply it, and I'm going to look at some biblical examples in a moment. An ambassador goes as a representative, and they can be received in another country. Why? Because they are representing a president or a person or whatever. And when they come in the name with the credentials, they are being accepted because they are fully representative of that person. And they're expected to represent them in the character and in every other way possible. And so when I'm asking in Jesus' name, I am coming with the consistency of the character of Jesus Christ, I am coming as if he was the one making the request. And what does that mean? Well, as we compare with Scripture, and we will see it in chapter 16 in just a second, what we find out is it means that I will be consistent with the desires that Jesus Christ would be consistent with. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I have heard believers say that I have come in Jesus' name. I've heard this. And he's got to respond to what I say. Okay, what was your request? 
Well, that's not consistent with the word of God. Doesn't matter. He said, if I come in his name. That's not what this passage is dealing with at all. In 1 John chapter 5, just go down to verses 14 to 15. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything, watch, according to his will. Whose will? The will of Jesus Christ. He hears us. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request which we have asked from him. Why? Because it's consistent with his whole character. And coming in Jesus' name is that he only went to the Father for the Father's will to be done. Let me give you an example that you're very familiar with. Even when he was in trouble and facing crucifixion, he said, Father, oh, if it be possible, remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted even as he was before the Father to the Father's will. And coming in Jesus' name means that I would come in the consistency with the will of Jesus Christ, with the will of the Father. Go with me to John chapter 15. Go back to the gospel according to John. I want you to see this. You see, you can't just take one verse out of context and say that's a magical formula that I just tack on Jesus' name. It's not it at all. And we'll see the context a little bit more in a second. But in chapter 15 of John, chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now watch. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. Why? So that whatever you ask in, ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. What's the context? He's saying, I chose you. My desire is for fruit in your life and that your fruit remain so that when you petition the Lord or the Father in prayer, he'll give it to you. What is that saying? That even in our prayer life, it's so that we'll bear fruit. How many times do we go to God in this type of prayer? God, I want your will in my life no matter what it is. God, I'm coming and praying before you so that I would bear fruit for your honor and glory, as we'll see in, a, in just a moment. Go with me to chapter 16 of John. Remember, I told you chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all going to build and go together. He's laying the foundation in chapter 14. When I come to chapter 16, look at verse 23. In that day you will not question me about anything. That's when the Holy Spirit's come. Truly, truly, I say to you, and here it is again, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it you. I can't stop there. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be full. You see, going and petitioning God is consistent with the way Jesus Christ came before the Father. That is for the Father's will to be done, number one. That is that he would bear fruit in his life, that his joy would be full. That is why a Christian can have joy in the midst of trials. That is why James is able to say, count it all joy when you fall into various and diverse trials. Why? Because as I still come before the throne of grace, even when I don't have an understanding, I can ask God for understanding about the trial, and I can still have joy in my heart. 
and peace in my heart. I won't turn you to Philippians chapter 4, but that's what it says. Very commonly referred to by believers. That when we don't understand something, we're to ask the Lord and the peace of God will rule in our hearts and minds. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to pray in that context. So number one, this concept of asking in Jesus' name is consistent with the character of Jesus Christ. That means it's according to the will of God. Secondly, it is very consistent with humility and servanthood. Humility and servanthood. Let me try to illustrate that to you biblically. When, before I turn to the passages, when we go to God and ask in Jesus' name, I'm coming humbly, realizing I can't do this. Realizing God has not only the ability to do it, but I want to do it so his name is on it. I want to do it in the character of Jesus Christ. And I'm coming before you as the ambassador that the Son has left on earth. And I'm now coming before the Father as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate that. Go with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, there's going to be a bride that's gotten for Isaac. Now the children are hoping that I don't tell the parents to do this for them. And I'm not going to. But there's a servant being sent forth. Now watch this. Look at verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned. Jesus Christ has left us in charge. Please place your hand under my thigh. He says, verse 3, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife from my son Isaac. He's sending forth a servant. Why? As his ambassador, as his representative. Go down to verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from him. Go down to verse 12. Now notice what the servant says. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me Success today and show loving kindness to my master, Abraham. What I'm trying to show you here, and if I were to take the time to go through the whole passage, is this servant goes forth as a representative of Abraham. When he petitions the Father, that is the God of heaven, he petitions him in the name of Abraham. He's asking for guidance. And by the way, if you know the story, God guides in every way, and he answers that prayer. But that servant came, and he wasn't looking out for himself. How many of our prayers are just selfishly motivated? 
I can't answer that for you. When we go before the Father, do we go as he did with, for Abraham as the representative of Jesus Christ on earth and we are coming in the name of his Son looking for what his Son would want, for what his Son desires? Go with me to Luke 18. Luke 18. You're familiar with this. I'll do this quickly, but in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, you know the two men. What's this parable all about? Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to do what? Pray. There it is. Everyone prays. One of them goes up and he's, is he before the God of the universe? Yes. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood, prayed with himself. I love that. You know, that's a challenge to my own heart. I hope that uh, that's not the case in your heart. But in all honesty, probably with most of us it's true. That oftentimes we're praying with ourself. Though we're using God, because he says in verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers. I'm not like this person. I do this. I pay my tithes. What have you got? The one that's being answered is verse 13. Tax collector standing afar off, couldn't even lift up his eyes, beating his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we know from the context that he's the one that was answered. So the first thing you have to understand when it says in John chapter 14, in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Even before I get to the next expression, the first thing is I am coming as a representative of Jesus Christ, asking the things that he would ask, wanting to represent him as he would come before you. And that is the way I am to come to God in prayer. To that, Jesus will respond. To that, God will respond. Not only that, back in John chapter 14, the second point is in the rest of the verse. He says, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And the second point of your outline is to glorify the Father. Our partitions, our prayer life, which should be a priority, our time of prayer, which should be something that we consistently are doing, praying, ought to be for the purpose of God getting glory. Not for us getting something that we want. How many of us pray that way? As Ron Belden was speaking about the songwriter this morning, that's what he was basically saying about that person. They couldn't wait to be home with God. And even in the illness, in the situation, they were ready to accept God's will. That's a person that wants God's glory. In verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, right? But in verse 13, it came as a result so that the Father may be glorified where? In the Son. Our prayer should be in response to God getting glory. Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 1, I won't turn there, is right now at the right hand of the Father. According to chapter 4, 
of the book of Hebrews, He is our high priest right now, interceding. And we are to come to Him in time of need and we will receive help. That's what He says. But how are we to do it? So that we're looking and the things that we're looking to receive would be the things that God would want. So that God would get the glory that would be consistent with the character of Jesus Christ. That it would line up with Him. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 4 for just one second. James chapter 4. We are vessels for prayer. Prayer should be vital in our lives. But they should be effective prayers. They should be prayers that are we're coming before God as a representative of Jesus Christ, looking for Him to get glory in our life, seeking help when we don't understand why, again, looking for His honor and glory. In James chapter 4, I'm going to read the first six verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source, I wonder how many believers fall into this category, your pleasures that war, the wage war in your members, the battle that's taking place in our hearts where we're seeking our own pleasures, you lust and you don't have, commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. Notice that. You're not even praying the way you should. Is prayer important? Yes. Now look at verse 3. You ask and then you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives. Why? That you might spend it on your pleasures. And basically what he's saying there to the tribes that are scattered from Israel is you're just looking out for your own benefit, period. For anything that will bring you more pleasure. You're not looking out for the things of God. Look at verse 4. Spiritually speaking, he says, you adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You see, there are those of us that many times we're living for the world. We're not living for God the way we should be. And then when we're coming in prayer, it's so we can advance in this world only. Or we can have more comfort, so we can have more of this world and what it has to offer. God has given us all things to enjoy. Don't misunderstand that. But even in our prayer life and a petition, Jesus Christ is ready to respond, yes, when it's consistent with his character, when it seeks the glory of God, when our motives line up with his. Look at the rest of the verse there. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's in the context of what? Prayer. You don't have because you're not asking the right way. You're just looking for your own lust. I hope that you have a very consistent prayer life. I hope that this is not the case in your life, that it's just to consume it so that you have better comfort at home. Do you ever think of this, that sometimes in your own children's life, you're praying wrong? Think about that one. You know why I say that as a parent? 
Sometimes we don't want our children going through trials at all. And when they're going through trials, we are praying, God, get them out of it. Maybe the way we should be praying is, God, you know this is what they need. Disclose your will to them. God, I don't like this uncomfortable situation in our family. But I know you're sovereign, and I know what Jesus Christ would do. I'm coming in his name. And he would pray, God, strengthen them with might in the inner man. Not take away the trial. God, help them through this trial, maybe to come to Christ. And help me to stop being a foolish parent to think that they are a believer when there's no evidence that there is. And Father, help me to just humbly walk at work under the circumstances. How do we come? Oftentimes we don't pray the way we should. We are vessels for prayer. We should be seeking just three things. last one I'll give you as I close. We should be seeking to do it in the character of Christ. That's what it means to come in His name. We should be seeking the glory of God. And we should be praying because we love God. Go back to John chapter 14 as we wrap it up. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it, verse 14. All in the context of bringing glory to God, coming as a representative of Jesus Christ and the character of Jesus Christ. And all of that means no magical formula here. And then he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We are vessels of prayer because we love him. And you notice that love is shown by what? Obedience. Everywhere in Scripture. Our children show they love us by obeying us, not resisting us. We show that we love God, how? By obeying him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is in the context of verses 13 and 14. Prayer is a demonstration of our love to God. We have to work at prayer, yes. We have to come the right way, yes. But we have to begin by setting time aside and being honest that we need God's help every day. The minute you think you've arrived in knowing the Word of God, let me challenge you there. How many times have you gone to a Sunday school class, a Bible study, maybe come to church, and someone's teaching in a text that you're familiar with, you've already shut them off because you have all the answers. You're not petitioning the Lord for the right things because you're consuming it in your lust. You're not seeking to bring glory to God. Or you're disobedient to the Lord right now. And then you're wondering why the prayers aren't being answered. We need help with prayer if we're honest. By the way, the disciples did. I didn't turn there. But in Luke chapter 11, the disciples said, teach us to pray. If we're honest, we need it. We need to be praying in the practical areas of life. We need to see that whether it be at work, whether it be in raising children, whether it be with my spouse or as a single person, just in my attitude with fellow believers in every area of my life, I need to be going to God in prayer.
I didn't take the time this morning, and time doesn't afford itself, but it's interesting to see the way the people of God in the New Testament prayed that was in the will of God, that did get answers to prayer. You know how they prayed? Here's some examples that the word of God would have free course, that Satan wouldn't hinder the work of God, that Jesus Christ would be glorified whether by life or by death. That's the way they prayed. They prayed that they would be strengthened through the trial with might in the inner man. Most of our prayer lives is a laundry list of asking. And if you even listen to yourself or the requests that people make, most of the time they are medical. Does God want us to pray for medical things? Yes. But most of our prayers center around that because we want to feel better. As we go into 2011, I want to challenge all of us, starting with myself, that this ought to be a year of prayer. That we are a, pr a praying church, a praying people. That we are given to praying in Jesus' name, not just by a formula, but that we realize that we are representatives. We are vessels for prayer. That we are able to come to the Father because of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. That in our prayer life, we be seeking the glory of God. We be seeking for fruit in our lives. Consistency in our life with the character of Jesus Christ. That we be coming to Him out of love and gratitude for what he's done for us. But I'm going to give you a practical thing. I was trying to think of just something simple. I didn't want to make it overcomplicated. But something simple that we could all do. And here's what I'm going to challenge us to do. And I want you to at least pray about doing it. That every week, every one of us, commit ourselves to doing this. And I'm going to give you two ways to do it. And I'm talking about the children as well as the adults. That we are committed every week to pray for someone in this church that we know. Someone that we know. That's easy. And you're going to commit to praying for them every day this week. And next week you're going to pray for somebody different that you know. The second thing I want you to do is to pray for somebody that you don't know. In this church. Someone that's not part of your fellowship group. Someone that all you know is a face or a name. And you're going to pray for them every single day. And then next week, someone else. You know what I think is going to happen? We're going to get to know one another better. If we do it. But you won't do it unless you commit before the Lord to do it. And the third one is to pray for a missionary. One all week this week. Next week, another one. I know we do it monthly on the, in the church. I'm convinced that if every adult and every child starts praying, and for children, start praying for the children that you know. Then start praying for those that you don't get along with well. You know what, adults? Do that yourself. The person you start praying for that you don't know, 
is one that you don't know well because you don't get along with. Now, how can we do that? Here's the practical suggestion I would give you. First of all, you have the bulletin. You're given a family for prayer every week. If it's someone you know, it makes it easy. If it's someone you don't know, like Jeanette Frotten, she didn't know I was going to say this, get to know her but be praying for her every day. There's a missionary of the month. You can start right there. And the second thing is, I know that there's a list that's produced in the church of the people in the church. And you know what? That's practical. I took a minute or two with that. And I have no doubt that some are just going to push it aside. But I challenge you on this. That if you go into 2011 committed that you want God to increase your prayer life so that it's an effective prayer life and this church is effective with prayer and you commit yourself to praying for one person that you know, one person you don't know, and a missionary every week for 52 weeks. And every one of us did that. In my opinion, it would change the entire spiritual atmosphere of this assembly for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, Jesus Christ, not only encouraged his disciples by saying that his work was not done and that he would prepare a place and come back for them, but he also challenged them as he was leaving to pray, to come before the Father in his name. And Father, he gave the encouragement that whatever we ask, he would do. We've seen this morning that that is all in the context of the character of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, that it means coming for the glory of God. And I pray that in 2011 you'd help us to be a praying people. Start with me, Father. And everyone in this church, that we would see the privilege and honor it is to come before the God of the universe. As we've already seen, all mankind comes before you. Many who know the scriptures realize that your ears are not open to the prayers of those who have sin in their life or are not coming for the right reasons. Even as we saw in James, when we're looking to consume it in our lusts. But Father, help us to come in the character of Jesus Christ. Help us to come for the glory of God. Help us to come out of our love and appreciation for all that you've done and are doing. And I pray that we'd see changes right in this church, right in our lives. Help us to pray for one another effectively. Help us to pray for our missionaries. And we pray, Father, that it would be sweet incense before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.